uh, Duffer Brothers, creator of the Netflix's Stranger Things. You've got some explaining to do. <laughs> it's, our, it's our favorite show. <laughs> and that show's about references from the 80s. Uh, welcome to Film is Lit, the podcast where we take a piece of literature and compare and contrast it to its film or television adaptation. My name is Danny. I'm the film expert. My name is Laura Sheher, and I am the literature expert. Literature expert. <laughs> yeah. And uh, full spoilers uh, on this podcast. We forgot to mention that, that in past episodes. But yeah, we're going to spoil everything. But today is another special episode. It's a guest episode. And we are covering the seminal, groundbreaking manga series, Akira. What a film. What intense source material. Can't wait to get into this. But our guest today, this has been nine years in the making. Uh, <laughs> that, yeah, we've never actually met in person, but met a couple times over Zoom. The guest today is Ryan Burns. Ryan, say hello. Hello. It is uh, absolutely wonderful to be doing this with you all today. Uh, I can't thank you enough. It's an honor. And it's it's so exciting to be covering one of the stories that's nearest and dearest to me um, and has been for quite a while. Yeah, it's fantastic to finally meet you, uh, both of you, you know, over Zoom, albeit, but yeah, it's been a long time coming. I'm so happy that we're doing this. It's going to be a lot of fun. Yeah. Yeah. yeah as quick backstory, uh, listeners. So Ryan is my brother Tim's best friend, one of his best friends, and for the past almost decade. He's been a fan of mine, of my silly YouTube videos and stuff I post on Facebook. Uh, he's, he was there from the start uh, sh shouting his support. Uh, my only fan. Uh, no. The content wasn't that good. Yeah. Um, but That's subjective. It, it's become one of those inside jokes that we have to meet because it seems like we have similar interests. I mean, obviously you're friends with my brother and I, I think I'm similar to Tim in many ways, so I think we'd get along fine. Uh, well, we'll see from this podcast. Um, but yeah, we have still haven't met in person, but this is the next best thing uh, to have you on the podcast. You're a huge cinephile, as well as a fan of this particular source material, and it, it's ripe for this podcast. I mean, the range of differences and similarities, it, you have the whole gambit, stuff that's exactly the same, stuff that's switched around, stuff that's completely different. So, Yeah, and you know what? While you were talking, I was thinking about how perfect it is that we're covering Akira with you because we talked about Ready Player One with Tim. Um, as a reminder to listeners, that was the episode he was, as, he was on as a guest, and that's also very rooted in the 80s. Mm -hmm. And I was also wondering, like, did Ready Player One reference Akira? Yes. Because yes. when you were talking, I was like, oh, that would make sense. And now I'm like making another connection to that movie. That's so smart. Yeah. And you read that, I assume, as well? I, I read it a long time ago. I'm a huge fan of the movie. I think yeah. it was, I don't think it gets enough credit, honestly. Um, I, I tend to get kind of charged up when I find, you know, people say they don't like it because I'm like, how could you not like that movie? It's incredible. It like has uh -oh. everything from our childhood. <laughs> And it's like smashed into one. And I get that it's a little cheesy on the nose, but it's a fun film. I think the story is 
is pretty decent, uh, but I think it's just a fun experience. I just enjoyed it a lot. I mean, I, I can understand yeah. critiques on it, but it's just a fun, a fun yeah. thing. Well, as I tried to relay in the episode on it, is that I loved the spirit of the film, but certain story mechanisms or, or plot details I, I had some problem with being the film snob that I am. Um, but, <laughs> but yeah, but we both loved the book. Yeah, it was so much fun. And I did not see myself enjoying it. So yeah. yeah, now now I understand why this would have been referenced in that book, and I would not have had any context for it. So that's fun. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the reference was the bike that um, I'm forgetting the the lead heroine's name, but oh, she rides that in the Oasis. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, anyway, that's not what we're covering. Yeah. Well, yeah. Covering Akira. So yeah, let's get right into it. Uh, Ryan, if you may, can you describe your uh, relationship with the source material and the movie when you first saw it or first read the manga? And then also kind of briefly touch upon like what is manga as compared to graphic novels? Of course. Um, So... I actually saw Akira first. I saw the film first when I was younger. I had just moved to Nashville. I, I grew up in Franklin, a town right outside, but we moved to Nashville for high school and it was kind of a transition phase. And we had, you know, in this, you know, new house that we moved to, uh, one day I was, I came home from school and it was early afternoon and I was just kind of flipping through channels and I came across, um, yeah, I loved Sci-Fi Channel growing up as a kid. I mean, I'm a huge Sci-Fi fan, so this is right in my wheelhouse. Um, I think it was maybe 10 or 11, maybe 12 when I first saw the film, and it's an adult level film from a thematic standpoint and a visual standpoint. And to see that as a kid, it kind of is cemented in my mind. I can still see myself watching it in the in the den, and because I was just absolutely blown away by it. And mm-hmm. It was for a myriad of reasons. It was, I thought it was a beautiful film. I thought that the artistry and production, I mean, this isn't, you know, me as a kid thinking this, this has kind of developed over time as I grew up and understood that a little bit better. But um, it was, I think the, what made it stand out the most to me watching it for that first time was it was, it was definitely a shock factor involved because it's a very aggressive film. Um, in terms of the violent aspect of it, but it uses violence in a very particular way, which, you know, we can discuss here in a bit, but it was my introduction to what I later came to understand as anime. And I had never really seen anything of that art style before. You know, I think we all grew up with a certain set of Disney films and, you know, maybe some slight departures from the Disney style animation here and there. And Mm -hmm. when I first saw something like Akira, it stood out to such a high degree that it I immediately marked it as one of my favorite films across genres and styles that I'd ever seen. And it took a long time to really piece together what what I think are, you know, major plot points or major overtones in certain, you know, certain thematic situations. Um, I've seen it a ton, but it was a while. It, it took a really long time for me to actually find out that it actually was adapted from mm-hmm. a manga. And I, I kind of became aware of what manga was a little bit later on. So Akira was around for a while. I discovered it was adapted from manga. And I to provide a disclaimer, I, I don't know enough about 
what manga is, and I don't want to say anything that is completely way off. Um, mm-hmm. sure. To me, it's 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 a it's its own art form underneath kind of the, the overarching umbrella of literature. And I know that there's major differences differences between graphic novels and mangas that exist, but I don't know enough to kind of expound on what those differences are to be accurate about it. But Akira is one of my favorite movies. It's it's uh, it it holds a special place in terms of it's my introduction to anime, and it's a pretty darn good one. To like, I'm thankful that it's the first one I saw because it it just opened my eyes to what this other expression was or artistic kind of avenue in in mm-hmm. cinema and in storytelling was. So it's a fantastic it's a fantastic film, and Otomo did an unbelievable job on both the manga and the movie. And it had to be extremely difficult for him to kind of put all of that together, which is pretty incredible. Yeah. That was something I noticed when I was watching it was I was like, this has to be the same illustrator. And then I was thinking too, like how interesting is it that with, I guess this is my introduction to graphic novels and manga um, or manga, but how interesting is it to see your art go from still life And, you know, having the forethought to put like shadowing and angles and all that stuff to create drama in like a still photo or drawing. And then as the same artist, be able to go from that to a totally moving picture. I was like, that must have been incredible. (laughs) Because there's definitely like scenes where you're like, oh, yeah, like this is exactly taken from this panel or this window. So that was pretty cool for me to watch. Yeah. And there are so many new techniques that animators uh, picked up from this film. This kind of created, this brought, certainly brought anime to the forefront in Western culture. Mm -hmm. Um, But there are so many new colors that were like created Mm -hmm. for in for animated films that came out of this film because uh, I was doing a little research on it and that most films during this time, uh, animated films took place during the day because when you, there's less colors involved oh, when you need to, yeah, uh, write them. And so at night, you and know, the you contrast have, is yeah, probably lower, right? right. Exactly. So at night you have higher contrast and you have, you have more, there's darkness, obviously, because lack of light. So you need to add more colors in order to actually see the frame. And also, when this came out in the 80s, they had to literally record their drawings right, in certain, cells, yeah. yeah, so like it, it not advanced today where you could use like CG for that type of stuff. So actually, this is like a little tiny fun fact. Um, and I'm not sure if you've been out to San Francisco, Ryan, but there's this really cool small Disney museum in San Francisco that actually has one of the old like cameras that would film animation movies. And it's insane. It's like as tall as the building because all of these movies were shot downward because they're cells, right? And you have to like flip through them. And so they're not propped up. They're sat down flat and it's massive. And like they have like all of these like clear panels that you see through. So if you look from the top of the museum down to the bottom floor, you actually see how the camera works and how you like watch those cells move and are recorded to make them it's really cool it's a it's a very small museum and it's also very random that there's a disney museum in san francisco it's like right by the presidio but it's really cool and if you ever want to see like an animation camera i think that's the only example that i've ever seen yeah so 
if any listeners or Ryan, if you're ever in San Francisco, <laughs> and, and if we're ever in San Francisco, we should. Go. That is on. That that will be at the top of my list if I if I make it out there. Um, yeah, I'd love I hope to. It's I've never there. been. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. So anyway, that was like a yeah. fun fact I thought about when I was thinking about the animation of this movie. But yeah, no, Otomo pioneered so many new animation techniques, that, and you can see that all the inspirations in live action films too. I think Tron and Tron Legacy come to mind when we're talking about the bike scenes when they're on the the motorbikes and the light streaks across the frame. I mean, oh, I that was one of my favorite things actually. Yeah. Right in the beginning, when they get on the motorcycles and they're streaking off, and they have those like the tracked lighting like that was really cool yeah super cool (laughs) yeah super influential Mm -hmm. for just sci-fi films in general obviously neo tokyo takes a lot of inspiration from blade runner which we we talked about yeah yeah. right off the bat i was like this is Mm -hmm. like when harrison ford rides up into future la basically like neo la yeah (laughs) as which also is like 2019 oh yeah it is yeah it is yeah, there's, that's there's crazy. Some really, like, like really crazy um, coincidences between like timelines. Yeah, even even today, like in our like in in real life, there's some crazy coincidences with Akira that are lining up. Yeah, now. like like the Olympics exactly. right? are in Tokyo. It's nuts. Yeah, yeah. So that was well. Hopefully, it's not foreshadowing like a. <laughs> Yeah, hopefully not <laughs> foreshadowing another uh, uh, event, but yeah. Oh yeah, do you want to share your... Yeah, yeah. I was just going to say to finish up that point, you know, it's easy to see all the influences that came from Akira, like, you know, Stranger Things we mentioned, but also Looper and um, Chronicle as well, but also Akira itself, the manga and film took a lot of inspiration from Blade Runner and and a couple other films as well. So it both, it's a give and take. Oh, Ryan, I was just going to say, I can't imagine watching this film at 12 years old. I, that would just, I, I I don't know if that would, would have absolutely wrecked me. I remember watching children of men at like 11 years old and being scarred for, I don't know, five years after that. (laughs) Um, But I, I agree with you. It, (laughs) <laughs> it, it. I know it sound it sounded absurd when I said it, but I was like, I cannot believe that I was that young watching this because it's it's tough. Um, and thankfully, it just kind of created my interest in in anime as opposed to yeah. you know pushing me away from it. But mm-hmm. um, right, yeah, it, it's uh, it's it's definitely jarring at times and very tough thematically. Uh, but it. It was fascinating. I think, you know, being that young, I was, as you mentioned, that opening sequence with the bikes and the tracked lighting, that was something that stood out to me. And every time I rewatch the film, I always think this is absolutely beautiful. How cool is that tiny little facet in that opening sequence where they just, they kind of track the bikes through the city, through the turns. And, and it's almost like fish in a stream and, Ooh, yeah. It like added to the flow. Like the other, like flow is a very important feature of the production and mechanics of this film, and that just kind of highlights it and brings mm. to the forefront like the animated animation process and the techniques they use to kind of to put this together and create it. But yeah, thankfully it didn't push me away from it. It definitely pushed me in the right direction. But I don't know. I'm, I'm thankful that I I got a hold of it. You know, at at such yeah. an early age. Yeah. Well, I wish. To go back to my journey, I wish I saw this at a younger age because this, I, for years, and especially in film school, I've always heard how 
great and influential Akira was, but I just never got around to it because anime personally usually isn't my thing. I haven't been exposed to a lot of it. Um, I've seen Full Metal Alchemist. I know that there's two versions of that series, but I think I've seen the good one. Anyways, yeah, haven't seen a lot of anime. And over the years, America has been trying to make a live action remake of this film, but it's never come to fruition. Recently, over past years, Jordan Peele at one point was um, on board to direct it at Universal. Uh, That fell through. And then Taika Waititi at one point was supposed to direct it, but then that fell through as well. The problem is, is that it'd be too high a budget and the film would have to be rated R and high budget R rated films are they, that scares studios because you want to get your money back. Right. But with the R rating, sometimes that doesn't happen just because your audience is limited. And of course there's the discussion of like, how would you cast it? So did you read that article from the LA times that found that like two thirds of Asian American slash Pacific Islander roles in movies are cast are cast as the rock no i did not know that (laughs) well yeah it was an la times thing i thought that was really interesting fun fact i've met the rock that's true story uh that's another uh podcast but yeah so i've heard about kira's influence for years i've never come around to it and then about half a year ago i got a message from ryan saying that should definitely be on the pod and we're talking about what potential books and movies we could cover and then he mentioned akira i'm like wow i i didn't know that was based on source material and this would be finally an opportunity to watch the movie now i have a, a reason and yeah i read the manga i there are six volumes available but i read the first three and that's kind of from my understanding the movie is mostly Volumes one and two with a little bit of three and six in there. So yeah, we we read yeah volumes one through three, really enjoyed those. And then we watched the movie last night and what, uh, what an experience. So let's. <laughs> yeah. So my experience with Japanese anime actually starts when I was super, super young. I'm thinking probably like four years old. Because a movie that came out in the same year as this is Totoro, My Neighbor Totoro. And my dad went to Japan on a business trip. And I think some of his coworkers were, you know, had kids and were aware of this and told my dad, like, oh, you should try to find this for your daughter. She'd probably love it. And so I watched it. I think we had the VHS from like, like, I I think we might have just gotten rid of it because I finally found the Fox dub like American English dub um, on DVD. So I finally got rid of my VHS. (laughs) But um, I, after that, I got into a lot of Miyazaki films like um, Kiki's Delivery Service and um, like all of his films, but never. And and some of those get fairly intense, like Spirited Away actually like freaked me out as a kid. (laughs) Really, really scared me, but I've come around to it. finally as an older person and so when you know I heard we were doing Akira I was really interested to see if this kind of different artist would have like similar themes or like similar animation style and definitely different animation style um and I was very surprised at how dark it was as well 
but I and to be honest the first time I read the manga and watched the movie it was like way too intense for me and I was like oh my gosh like how am I gonna record this episode and feel like I know what to say because I was just like very overwhelmed and like emotionally and <laughs> visually very overwhelmed but as the more I dug into the meaning, I think I've really come around to what it's trying to say, even though I don't necessarily appreciate the vehicle as I think most both of you do. Um, I, I thought it was really interesting to get an understanding of like possibly why I don't like it. And it kind of got me into like understanding Japanese culture and stuff like that. So I thought it was really fun to go into this, even though I... Like I said, didn't love the vehicle as much as you two probably did, but it'll be a good discussion. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I mean, you never know with Laura what uh, violence she likes. She loves Tarantino violence where people are like gushers, but yeah, you, <laughs> you, you, you animate it and sometimes it's not her thing, but we all have her thresholds. But yeah, so let's get into it. Ryan, the manga overall is... 2100 pages i believe and now you have the very easy task of trying to summarize the overall message otomo is trying to say with his manga uh that's thankfully very easy and i have such a great answer for you both right now um <laughs> don't feel pressure because honestly it's it's yeah, tell us intense. so we know we are, we know but we like we like you know want to hear it from you um, this is an extensive story broken up over six parts. Um, each book is incredibly dense with plot, subplot, character development is insane, which when we talk about it later will be something I, I mentioned in the movie. But to me, um, and after having read the series and watched the film numerous times, you know, I think it's difficult to pinpoint one predominant theme. I think there's actually two or three at play that are, you know, almost equally weighted. Maybe one is slightly outweighing, you know, the other two or three. But there seems to be a commentary on mankind's grasp for power. Um, and that power is manifested in different ways. It's manifested spiritually it's it's presented as um governmental control um it's also presented underneath uh you know the image of religion throughout the manga and um very briefly uh in the movie alongside that theme of grasping for power i think that there's the kind of undertone of mankind's tendency to cause destruction and destroying ourselves through the process of attaining whatever that power might be. And it's, again, there's different avenues through which, you know, you quote unquote power is pursued in the manga and the movie. Um, but I think the two major, you know, on the nose comments that Otomo is bringing to the table are focused on power and the grasp for it. And also what happens when it becomes out of our control and the destruction and fallout that come from that um, and how far we're willing to go to obtain that. I think those are two very important themes throughout both, both mediums. Um, there's major sociopolitical tones in, in, in both 
presentations of the story, which are really, really important. Um, it's very interesting artistically. Uh, right out of the gate in the movie, you see something reminiscent of an atomic explosion. And mm -hmm. I think that it's very clear that there's a commentary on, you know, post-World War II Japan's Reconstruction era and representing that in this mm -hmm. movie as well. There's, there's a lot of, you know, sometimes obvious, you know, sometimes subtle references to the city rebuilding itself and going through these phases of, you know, deconstruction, reconstruction over and over and over again. Um, and I think that that is, there's, there's commentary as to showing society's struggle or, you know, Tokyo's or Neo Tokyo in the, in the, in the stories struggle with that process of reforming society and restructuring it appropriately or Neo Tokyo's attempt to put itself back together and how these problems through grasping for powers beyond our control keep on recurring. So there's a cycle to everything and mm -hmm. it's, it's reiterated several times over in the manga, uh, the manga, and it's not so much apparent in the movie, which is interesting. We see that event at the beginning that looks like an explosion where we're kind of, you know, the viewers presented with, this idea of hearkening back to, you know, the events of World War II, and it's very emotional. It's, it's a very serious thing to look back, look back into history and, and, and recollect or, or even examine. And right out of the gate, it comes out and comes, like he's coming out hot out of the gate just with that image and in the, in the manga and in the movie. Mm -hmm. And so there's a, there's a major historical reference to, I think, you know, Japan's struggle with uh, dealing with those instances and horrific events and then restructuring, po you know, post-World War II. So there's lots of social, socially political themes at play. Power is a major overtone involved. And then what happens when it gets out of control are, are I think, some of the more important messages presented. Yeah, I I totally agree. And one of the things that I thought was really interesting that I hadn't thought of because I was so distracted by the apocalyptic nature of everything happening was there's almost this like celebratory tone toward apocalypse. And when I read that, I read this really interesting article online which I can post. I can send it to you Ryan too, but I'll post it on the podcast page because I found it really helpful to understanding this piece that like when I read that there was a celebratory tone toward apocalypse I was like why like I don't understand that but then it was sort of highlighting like the potential of rebirth like if things get so bad after a certain point and they like highlight that so much about like how society has sort of gone to shit like you know characters oh I also read about like the breakdown of the nuclear family mm -hmm. like the absence of a father figure absence of a mother figure and how like like femininity is treated and Japanese culture and masculinity is treated and how that masculine feature was broken down after World War II because the emperor was removed from power and stuff like that. And so for me to understand like, oh, that's really interesting that like starting over would be viewed as like a positive thing. Um, and I think like when you're talking about like power and how can that, how that can be corrective, it's like, well, you know, if the wrong people start reconstructing, is it better to just blow it all up again and start from square one? Like, exactly. where do you start that process from? And like, 
how can you retain the things that are positive, but also sort of go through that process and realize like this was such a traumatic thing to happen for, to happen to a culture which finds the self as sort of a collective nature. Like that, that was really, really eye-opening to me. I think it helped me understand Japanese culture a little bit more when I read this article. Like I said, I'll send it to you because it was really insightful. <laughs> yeah, the Colonel is definitely a cautionary character to look at for, I guess, anyone in a government position uh, for the country in that time of how not to act because, yeah, they're put at a baseline once Akira first goes off in the 80s. I think it's the, the nine, 92 in the manga, but 88 or 88 in the movie. Mm-hmm. And it, it is tragic, but there is that beauty, as you're alluding to, and kind of just a fresh start. Um, the story is, you know, 30 years removed from the the big explosion, and the country at the time was 40 years or 44 years removed from that. So still very fresh in their minds. And going forward in the story, you see people making the same mistakes. The colonel wanting more power, which leads to, you know, his experience with the espers, the little kids, leads to, you know, Tetsuo running into uh, Takeshi and then kind of starting the whole process all over again. And then you have the rebirth of Akira and... Yeah, volume three of the manga ends with another second explosion, and then the end of the film ends with a big explosion, both level Neo-Tokyo and imply that they're going to start again. So yeah, very, very emotional to see that even after the the first explosion and a complete rebirth, they're going to have to go through it all over again. I was certainly shocked when that happened in volume three i i was not expecting that to happen again and i know that the manga goes on to where akira is an emperor and a, a king of the new destroyed neo tokyo and and tetsuo is kind of his second in command his servant where the movie ends with akira fully awakening and tetsuo being i guess absorbed and like being creating one with the big bang and like becoming the universe itself like yeah i want the end of the movie right yeah the end of the movie yeah so i wanted to get your take on like what do you think happens to um tetsuo after he's engulfed by akira's light so that's that's one of the things that kind of keeps me coming back to this storyline and you know spoiler alert there's there's a nice nod to tetsuo at the end of volume six um and whereas in the film we kind of are left with this kind of you know fade to white if you will you know because it because it ends with kind of like the star stream-esque traveling through space kind of idea and then i think everything you know turns wider and starts to fade but they're basically in that dome of light um, I think that they're in a place or an existence beyond what is meant to be conveyed to the reader is understandable. I think that's one of the devices that's like left up to the reader to decide where they are. I think it's an over it's an overall positive place. It's a metaphysical area where it, it seems like the espers have siphoned off or 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 walled off Akira and Tetsuo from doing any more harm to any of the inhabitants in in Tokyo or or 
of the world for that matter. And um, he's kind of been cordoned off, uh, but protected at the same time. And I think he's very much alive in a different state. But yeah, that's that's one of the elements of the story that's not directly laid out clearly. And for me, it helps me or it drives me to you know, keep on inquiring as to maybe there's something else in the story I could find that kind of more clearly explains that, or it keeps me coming back to dig into it. And it's just a fun facet of the story that, you know, I don't think is very clearly stated, but is alluded to in in different ways. Yeah. I like how you said it's very metaphysical because that's something I wanted to touch on too. Like something that made me very uncomfortable was when at the very end, Tetsuo turns into that sort of pulsating meaty yeah, amorphous blob yeah. of flesh that resembles a big baby yeah, yeah. it's it's pretty gross <laughs> ah, i thought it was gnarly i mean it and, reminded me of speaking of stranger things the you know the big monsters in, in mm-hmm. season three yeah and also of... annihilation yes yes um so that imagery I think was so disturbing to me that I was like, okay, like, let's think of it. Let's put a little positive spin on it. Let's think of it more as symbolic. And I was trying to dig into that as like, okay, like, what is this symbolic of? Like he's body parts and all this stuff. But then after I read this article that really helped me appreciate the movie more, it talked about how Tetsuo goes through a huge sort of transition from being this very insecure teenager preteen and becomes this semi-healthy like happy presence if not a total adult he's kind of moved through like the puberty stages through like maybe being like a 25 to 30 year old where he's come to terms with who he is and that like finding of identity I think was really interesting um, especially because I'm watching Big Mouth right now <laughs> it makes me think of like it was very similar yeah it was very similar though to that like that visceral feeling of when you're an adolescent and you're super you know you might be part of the popular crowd but you know it's not because you're the most attractive maybe they like they think you're smart but they kind of keep you on the outskirts of that that group like he's kind of on the outskirts of the gang but then when he finally is given a little bit of power with all of these mental abilities he's like oh now I'm top dog and like obviously that turns him into a very destructive being but then I think once you sort of like once he forces his way through that and he's kind of given some help by the esters or those like ethereal beings who have kind of gone through the same process they're able to, like you said, contain him, but like help him get to that like healthier presence of mind. That's how I sort of came to understand that. And yeah, like even comparing it to Big Mouth a little bit, like I I just love that their hormones are represented by these hormone monster and monstrous <laughs> characters because it's very similar. Like they're just like the uh, the embodiment of that like gross hormonal angry sexual piece of yourself that you don't know what to do with and that's kind of how I started to appreciate how gross his characterization was at the end like I don't know again like that could totally not be in the book and I might be reading too much into it but like that's kind of what I took out of that article also in tandem with what I was seeing in Big Mouth because that's what I'm watching right now that's I'm impressed that you connected those two, but that makes complete <laughs> sense. I totally agree. And to even expound on that, I think Tetsuo is much more sympathetic in the film than he is 
in the manga. Yeah. He seems to become almost immediately evil in the manga. Within a few pages after gaining his powers, he runs into his friend Yamagata. And, and I think that's one of the first people he, he kills. And then he becomes the leader of that gang where in the movie, it's much more of an internal struggle. And the espers give him advice throughout the film to not use this power in a certain way because it will overcome you where in the manga he seems to almost immediately become overcome with power and he's he's evil now so I, his his arc is certainly richer in the film for me and you can tell that he's still wrestling with his past self because in his final moments before being enveloped in the brightness of akira he you see flashbacks of his relationship with uh uh, Canada and how that they grew up in a foster home and and they're still part of the old Tetsuo in there but yeah whether whether him becoming this big amorphous baby overcome with power is representing him growing up or like representing him being overcome with like re the responsibility and the reality of adulthood I, th I think that metaphor Tracks. tracks yeah completely i do too i i think that that's i mean a, after you provided that take it it kind of got my wheels turning and i'm i agree that it's it's a physical representation of kind of the under what's under the hood with tetsuo tetsuo as as a as a person or, or what he what as you said you know his his track through life in terms of going through because these characters it's very briefly stated in the in the film and in the movie or and in the manga that these these are kids we're dealing with like yeah. they're 13 14 15 16 17 years old like all of the primary characters are young going through this same track in life and i think it's an interesting thing to look at with how i think you could say multiple things about why that grotesque form he takes on at the end of the series and the film is in the shape of an infant um, I think you could look at that, you know, as a metaphor to how underdeveloped he is as a human or as a person yeah. or what has been restricting his development and, you know, the ugliness of, you know, those feelings and emotions and experiences and how difficult they can be to deal with. Uh, if you want to anthropomorphize that, I think that's the correct usage of the, of the word. But yeah, totally. Cut that out if I'm wrong, please. No. Um, <laughs> No, we're keeping it in. Um, <laughs> but it's uh, it, it that's a really solid point. I hadn't really thought of it that way until you you stated it. But I think it's a really good, like nail on the head type of examination of it. Yeah. Well, it was. I have to give credit to the. I have to look up the person who wrote that because yeah. that that article. It was all contained. Basically, it was just like a full read of the movie and the book, and I was like, <laughs> like my head exploded. So. Yeah. When I find that article, I'll post it on the page because I think everyone, anyone who wants, I, actually, I said this in the Watchmen episode because I'm very new to graphic novels and manga. Never read one before a couple weeks ago when I dove into Watchmen that I think that the average reader like myself who hasn't been introduced to this style of literature should go in knowing a little bit more background because I think you'll get more out of it. Um, and I likened it to when Danny has read Jane Austen and like, 
<laughs> I have like, I have a degree in literature. I took like multiple courses on English literature. So I have all of that context going in. And so like, I understand why it's a satire of the time. And like, I enjoy that. Yeah. But if you don't go in knowing that you're not going to get as much out of it. So I would say like, if you're new to this genre, definitely read this article and definitely get like more context to go in with it. Cause I, I definitely even had to sort of Google and ask Danny about some of the plot points because I get really distracted by all the <laughs> pictures, which is great. And I think it's a really fun medium to go between literature, like just hard writing and movies. Yeah. Um, Cause you do get to see the artistry of like choosing the angles of, you know, a drawing. Like that's incredible to me. I can't believe that people have that skill. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I get so distracted by that and and reading so quickly because I'm such a quick reader that I could go through these these volumes in a day. And then I kind of realized, I was like, oh yeah, like check that off my list, totally done, give me the next one. And then I sort of realized like, oh shoot, I should have been paying attention to the actual like story beats. So yeah, but it was like, it's unlike Watchmen in a lot of ways, but also, I don't know, we could talk a little bit about like the overlap of well, like the politics of this time and how much art reflected that. Cause Watchmen is very similar to this in a lot of ways. Right. Very yeah. similar. Sorry, like the, with the squid at the end of Watchmen. Let's like, Oh yeah. Right. And, but also similar in the sense that nuclear weapons give off the sense of pure awe and hearkening back to the actual like definition of awesome its actual definition is like creating awe within you and that that can be synonymous with like fear and both the manga and the film just really give off that sense of enormity and power in the story akira is is represented as the ultimate power and this is a good way to transition into the character of akira and what he represents mm-hmm. so the the biggest difference arguably between the film and the manga is that in the manga when tetsuo goes to meet akira underground he meets the kid and they have their own adventure from there in the movie Akira has been dead for decades, ever since the original bomb went off. Akira did the original bomb, and he's now a set of body parts in these jars. So reading the manga first, knowing that there's this whole journey with the actual kid, Akira, and then to see that in the movie, I felt almost... Well, I felt truly what Tetsuo felt, shocked, because I was expecting this one thing to happen for it to be this big payoff, and it's something completely different, something much more disappointing. And yeah, I'm glad I'm glad you didn't reveal that, Ryan, because that was quite the quite the twist mm-hmm. in, in the film. Yeah. You know, I don't know why Otomo chose to do that. I I think maybe part of it was rooted in the enormous task of condensing 2100 pages down to a two-hour film yeah because one of the things that's so astounding to me about akira is the responsibility of basically otomo dissecting his own creation in a way and piecing it together in a way that made sense from a cinematic perspective there is so much that is left out or underdeveloped in the film. And I'm not saying that as a critique because I'm fully aware that 
this is an, a nearly impossible task for anybody other than the original author of the work mm-hmm. to do and undertake. And I'm not sure why, you know, I don't know why he chose to represent um, Akira that way in the film. I think it's referenced slightly in the series, but for the most part, he is appearing to accompany Tetsuo on this kind of, you know, latter part of their saga together. But yeah, uh, it's a, it's an interesting kind of change between the, um, the series and the film. Yeah. And you have the literal interpretation of Akira being a weapon, but I think the actual discourse that Otomo is trying to start is that it's all about how people want to use Akira because you so you have the colonel who is the the evil army man who wants to use him as a, a weapon and, and continue the experiments despite the original experiment of Akira leading to the destruction of Tokyo and the birth of Neo Tokyo so you have that angle then you also have the revolutionaries who want to liberate the espers and akira whether their agenda is to remove nuclear weapons from the equation to remove the threat of nuclear war altogether or otherwise that that's their agenda and then you have someone like nezu who is in between who is part of the revolution but as soon as he gets his hands on the weapon you see he has ulterior motives and then he also wants to use um, akira as a weapon and you delve into that more in in volume three. And it's important to note that the whole time Akira himself barely speaks. And then of course, in the movie doesn't speak at all and only appears as kind of this metaphysical implied form at the very end before Mm -hmm. turning into light. So that that's my interpretation of what Akira is. It's not, we're, we're not actually talking about what Akira is because we know he created the blast that leveled Tokyo. It's all about how these characters want to. And and with Tetsuo, he just wants a connection. He wants answers because he doesn't realize what's happening with himself. The irony being that this pursuit of knowing power causes him to implode with power mm-hmm. in a sense. Yeah. Yeah. Um <laughs> so how badly did this movie make you want to own a super awesome laser cannon oh my goodness i that's probably the coolest most heavy metal thing i've ever seen they use it a lot more in the manga but i understand why it doesn't come up in the movie because it's only two hours but i think if i used one it would be a cool afternoon, but by the end of it, I'd lose a leg, most likely. <laughs> um, you and just the, form a metal one, you know? Just oh, think about it really hard and then true. put the pieces together. Very Star Wars, by the way. Yes. Very Star Wars. Very true. Very yes. true. <laughs> yeah. But I also feel that way about other pieces of technology, too. The um, Tetsuo's bike, for instance, I would... Yeah, Love to ride something really like cool. that, but then iconic, but pro- would probably cause a pileup on the 101. <laughs> I love how the bike, he, I think he says something like this in both the manga and the anime, but when he says something like the bike was built to like my proportions, and so it's kind of like 
one of those guns in sci-fi where like you hold it and it recognizes your palm and you're the only person who can use it. That was kind of cool because I was like, oh yeah, like a car or a motorcycle that can do that. Heck yeah, like I want that. Yeah. 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 yeah like, all the technology he, was cool. He says something along the line because there's that scene where they walk out of the the bar and Tetsuo's like remarking on the capabilities of the of the bike, and he's uh, kind of is walking up and he's he's like. I, I specify like I customized that bike to myself specifically. You couldn't handle it. And then he gets in and like it shows that sequence where the bike kind of the hood or the console opens up yeah. cockpit style and he kinda climbs into it and shifts it. And he's like, If you want so badly want one so badly, go steal steal one for yourself and Yeah. It's such a great scene and it it really does that that item in the overall story justice. Like it kind of presents this, it, it's almost a, it's also kind of a, maybe a narrative device commenting on like increase in technology and how it's desirable and, mm-hmm. you know, almost something to be lusted after in terms of Tetsuo's kind of admiration for this thing that Kanada has. And it feeds into also his animosity towards him as kind of this older brother power figure that he struggles with throughout the whole story yeah and yeah the 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 stylized technology in both the manga and the film was i think as a kid thinking about it now one of the biggest aspects of me like falling in love with 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 the the movie was i just thought it was cool and Mm -hmm. and over time i kind of understood the the more emotional messages involved in the in the storyline and grew to appreciate those as I got older, but yeah, the laser cannons, the, the bike, the, uh, there's something in the manga called caretakers, which are really interesting. Oh, so that was in volume three. I wrote this down. One of my other favorite animated films, uh, the Incredibles, they, I, I think took direct inspiration from the caretakers. It's, it looks exactly like the machine in the first Incredibles, the black, um, sphere. Oh, with the, very yeah. cool. So yeah, yeah. I love that in the Incredibles. Yes, it's so cool. And I was reading the manga, and I'm like, "Holy shit! This is this is the Incredibles." So yeah, the the government cool. uh, dispatches these caretakers, big just tanks with like sphere tanks with legs, four legs, and it poses a big threat to because they're because that by that point in the story. Akira and Tetsuo are on the run and the city is essentially in lockdown as the colonel is going through with the coup. Gotcha. So it's this big mess of, yeah. Well, yeah. Speaking of a movie that has like the coolest futuristic technology of all time, like the Incredibles nails so much of that. Like, yeah. Yeah. uh, Mrs. Incredibles elastic suit, like all of that stuff is like, the coolest i think that's probably one of my first um like sci-fi interests when i was growing up like that movie probably worked a lot like this for you ryan where i was just like the ships in that movie the powers in that movie the the way that like yeah again very similar to Watchmen, where like 
the superheroes have reached, I mean, basically ripped right from Watchmen. They've reached a point where they've become too dangerous to be in society. So they've been outlawed. Outlawed. Yeah. yeah like, oh man, I, I need to rewatch that movie. Yeah. We <laughs> should got really excited. We about should watch that tonight. Uh, but no, <laughs> this is not, yeah. yeah. So, so, okay. So something I don't want to let the, not to interrupt you, but I don't want this to leave my head because I have a question about a change between the manga and the anime. So Something that was really highlighted over and over was that Canada has that pill and he like, he finds it after the motorcycle collision and he sticks it in his pocket and the Colonel and a bunch of different characters like Ryu who, oh, we haven't even talked about Kay. Ray is um, massively important. Yeah. Yeah. We haven't even touched on her. So like people kind of keep referencing this pill and where is the pill and Obviously, after Tetsuo has that encounter with the kid, what's his name again? Takashi. Yeah, Takashi. So he gets these headaches and he's looking for the drugs so that he can deal with his headaches, all this stuff. So does that pill that Canada finds, does that come back? Or like, how does that factor into the manga? Because I didn't see that in the movie at all. I'm recognizing my bias here because I love the movie and the manga so much that I'm like really struggling to, to bring myself to critique it. But I know that it doesn't necessarily mean like, I don't like it, but there's lady Miyako. Oh yeah. In the manga who now this actually might fall into the category of critique is tremendously underrepresented in the movie. Mm -hmm. Um, And if not completely intentionally misrepresented to kind of, divert any reader interest in a possible subplot there because the subplot with Miyako and the manga is extensive all the way through like she she plays a role throughout the whole series and yeah I was gonna ask about her too because she just is sort of relegated to this religious fanatic in the movie and Mm -hmm. even though I only read two volumes I was like that's definitely not who she was but maybe it's where she comes in at the end so i'm glad you're going to talk about that sorry not to interrupt but i'm glad no it's perfectly fine it's a huge it's a huge part it might be the biggest change between the two that i was struggling with or noticed um but the pill is so tetsuo at one point in the manga goes to lady miyako's temple and he's searching for answers and he's because Lady Miyako turns out to be one of the subjects of the same experiment experiment that the Espers were involved in. And she actually preceded the Espers by a few, a few test subjects. So she's number 19. She has 19 on her palm. The the Espers are fall within, you know, the 20 range. And then Tetsuo is number 41. So Lady Miyako, he, he goes to Lady Miyako in search of these answers as to what are these powers? What am I experiencing? You know, who is, Akira, how do I match up with him? How should I be thinking about him? I mean, in much less eloquent fashion than that. Like he's a huge dick about it um, because he's a huge dick through the whole series. But she states that because it focuses on one of the subgroups that is created to follow Akira and Tetsuo in the manga series as their own conquering force in Tokyo. And that following has been consuming these drugs. And what the drugs do is actually they allow this energy that we all are in the storyline, everyone in the world 
has the potential to activate or access this power. But mm-hmm. with some, it's just far greater than it is with others. It's very similar to, you know, the same idea as the Force in Star Wars. Um, sure. This pill, this drug, as Lady Miyako states to Tetsuo, temporarily enhances the ability to access it and use it. But it also acts as like a short circuit in the system in terms of long-term development of the power. Oh, so okay. it'll 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 juice up the system to be able to kind of reach this power and use it, but it causes severe, you know, adverse effects over time. And once it's kind of, you know, activated, then the point of or the dilemma of if can this get out of control becomes available to the subject. So the drug is kind of expounded upon the idea of the drug and what it is is expounded upon in the manga. And that's presented through an interaction that Lady Miyako has with Tetsuo when he goes to her temple and is kind of like, what the hell is going on here? Um, sure. And he's kind of bragging actually about taking the pills. And she's like, those are kind of screwing you up. You should, <laughs> you know, and it, it's really interesting because she kind of pushes him to stop taking them. And it actually presents like, a line of evolution in his character once he stops taking the pills. His his look completely changes, his behavior changes, his demeanor and attitude kind of shift. Um, so that's another point that I was thinking about mentioning. There's definitely like a comment on drug culture um, in this film and in the and in the manga, and it's I haven't really blown that out in great detail, but. It's prevalent throughout the whole series and the whole story, and it's an interesting kind of commentary on, you know, there's that scene when they go into the bar and he kicks open the door. I think it was Yamagata or or kind of, the, you know, one of them kicks open the door and they're talking and it like you see the bartender jump and he's really jumpy because he's selling drugs behind the counter. And he's right. like, you know, open the door quietly when you come in here and, you know, they kind of have like a playful banter back and forth and he's like you're actually going to buy something and he's like and drink your hog's piss or something like that yeah. <laughs> it's like a great line in the movie i think that's what he says i might be completely no that's that, but yeah that i think is, he says yeah. something like your it's either your hog piss or like your dick piss or something no, like hot just, dick. <laughs> yeah I, it was I, it stuck out to me because i was like we are that's keeping so- that in the podcast <laughs> yes we are no it like stuck out to me because it was like such a different way of saying yeah your piss yeah, to add the hog in there, really. I'm looking it up because I honestly it's, think it's gross. No, I know I, it's okay. And then, and you see in that same, and that's you know later on when Kai and Yamagata confront Tetsuo after they go back into the bar and it's been ransacked and he's sitting on kind of that throne of rubble, and he just kind of opens his hand and like a bunch of pills fall out and you can tell that he's just been munching these things like candy. And then there's there's. There's reference to it when he's on his throne in the movie, too. And it's like a statement about, you know, addiction or withdrawal. Like, he hasn't taken the medication. You see the arm kind of growing like this. It's spreading like a virus. And, like, one of my favorite parts about his favorite scenes in this movie in regard to that is he's got his hand on that stone seat and the biomechanical kind of creation that is his arm is bleeding like these wire like vessels into the stone because he Mm -hmm. gets up to try to go away and he has to like pull the growth like out of the slab Mm -hmm. and it's just a great visual shot of like this virus like progression of this 
power that he's dealing with or this struggle that's spreading you know outside of him and how it's affecting everything so that's kind of like a really disorganized take on you know how drug addiction or drug culture um, at that period of time is is being represented I think it's just a a really striking visual um, over a couple of different scenes that's a really really good way of explaining it because like pills and drug culture is like all over at least the two versions that i read yeah and doesn't even count it a well number one their gang is called something like the the capsules capsules right Mm -hmm. and he has it on his jacket which by the way is like a really cool jacket i also really love the back of that that was so cool like i think at one point he like puts it on and you see him from behind and i'm like whoa (laughs) like that was a great moment but yeah i like that visualization of having that like drug abuse sort of come out and it ends up like touching every aspect of your life and like to get over a drug addiction you have to like weed out all of those roots like those external roots that you kind of have put down right yeah because you have the beginning of the story wherein the the capsules gang are literally talking about taking pills right before they go out they're like all right let's let's take some pills let's do our little ritual they're obsessed with this kind of pill culture and Otomo paints this picture of this new society of youths where like this, this is part of their routine. They, where they hang out, they ride their bikes and they get high on pills or, or they don't even get high. That's kind of just what they do to level out because their tolerance is so high because that's part of their culture. And then you get into the actual supernatural espers part of it where it's implied that Masaru and Kyoko and Takashi look the way they do because they've been affected by the constant pills that were given to them. And even towards the end at the movie, when the Colonel wants Tetsu to come back, I think Tetsu has a line where it's like, yeah, and like a lifetime of those tests and taking the pills to look like the espers, like to, to look like them, no way. And the irony being that, you know, he is taking pills himself to try to deal with his condition, not necessarily knowing that it's affecting him in that in this adverse way. And yeah, Roots is a good way. I think you both put it that way of like, yeah, he's literally digging into the foundation. I think that's into his throne. That's another commentary, too, that Mm -hmm. he's trying to rule but these are literally holding him back in a sense mm-hmm. yeah so yeah the the pill storyline much bigger in the uh the manga for sure yeah w- what other did you have any other differences between the story that you either liked or didn't like ryan so there is the representation of the doctor in mm. the story in the in the movie which and i think this is important the doctor in the manga pass like passes away fairly early on um before all the major events that we see in the film take place but they otomo kind of reinserts the doctor as this steady figure throughout the film almost all the way up to the end when he's kind of consumed by the imploding mobile research lab where he's looking at the pattern and the overlay and then then as the event unfolds he kind of gets like imploded um so the doctor passes away when they go down into the subterranean, super cold research lab where Akira's 
you know, either body or organs are stored. Right, and yeah. there's an event where all the coolant leaks and, you know, he freezes basically frozen solid instantly in this event. And I thought it was very interesting that it was almost a reverse. Like you see, you can understand how like Lady Miyako's story wouldn't be necessarily provided and blown out because then you get into the whole religious fanaticism aspect of it in greater detail. And it's a whole other story underneath Akira in general. He kind of reverses and takes the scientist or the maybe the mad scientist figure um, or character type type character and kind of blows that idea further out or uses the doctor in a better sense to represent that idea of, you know, as I mentioned earlier, mankind's search and grasp and struggle for power through whether it's government control or scientific research or control through religion or even control of yourself. Um, and the doctor plays the role of representing that from a science scientific perspective. He, yeah. he embodies that entirely. There's multiple doctors in the manga that kind of play that part throughout the series, but as we're familiar with the doctor in the film, his character dies off. I think it's either at the end or maybe beginning or middle of end of two, maybe beginning or middle of three. It's um, very interesting that that decision was made. And one of my favorite characters in the manga was Chiyoko. And I hope I'm pronouncing that right. I'm probably butchering it. And if I am, I apologize. But we mentioned Ryu earlier, um, who's heavily associated with K and their resistance faction. Chiyoko, as I understand, is K's aunt. And she's kind of a big, burly woman that is a major force to be reckoned with in the manga and has kind of her own sub story with Kay and another saga that they go on. And I just loved how she was kind of used as this brawler type figure that was an accessory to Kay or a foil throughout Kay's development and serves in very much a prote uh, protecting role of several other characters. So uh, Chiyoko was, was left out. Um, I, I don't know. I watched the film again and tried to notice if there was any reference to her, and I might be missing it, but I'm pretty certain that there really wasn't. And I just saw that she was a, an integral part of the manga story that wasn't provided in the film. The Doctor was, an, was another one, and the extent to which Kay was used as a vessel for the Espers is provided in the film as like their extension uh, mm -hmm. or their kind of like... The glove, K is the glove through which the, you know, the esters, espers put on to affect the material world because they're obviously relegated to being you know, these tiny childlike people that are frozen in time and can't really do, any, do much physically. They have to rely on their mm -hmm. powers a lot. But K is really the extension that they use to you know, enact their own efforts to combat what Tetsuo is doing. That's something that's further elaborated on to a very high degree in the in the manga, and I understand Otomo just not really having the capacity to to you know blow that storyline out. I mean, there, it's just it's so tough um, to think about boiling all of this down into something that's readily accessible, yeah, um, in cinematic format again. 
So, I mean, what, what did you guys see between the two that stood out to y'all? Yeah, it was so satisfying yet eerie to actually hear the espers talk in their childlike voices because of course when you're reading it you're just just reading it and you have the voice inside your head but to actually hear them being these childlike being stuck in time with child voices yet they have this wisdom that comes from years of experience or wrinkly year- old faces yeah wrinkly old faces um certainly added an an extra dimension that made me appreciate those characters more on the flip side i don't know if i would feel this way if i didn't read the manga but k's story is just expanded so much more and i couldn't help but feel like she was a little undercut in the film however otomo does add that scene where she shoots a soldier seemingly for the first time and she has a moment where she needs to collect herself and realize like yes i i killed someone i ended a life and she has a a beat like a full beat where they deal with it and then kanada's like come on we need to move on and that's kind of like her official stepping through the doorway like she's a part of the rebellion now whereas in the manga she was kind of already fully a part of it and she didn't didn't have that arc. So I, I, even though I don't think Kay was fully implemented into the film as much as Otoma could have, I, I do appreciate that development of her character. Um, yeah, I thought Nezu was a character who I was a little confused about in the manga, to be honest, because since he ended up having ulterior motives in the movie, kind of more so because as the coup is happening, I, I'm not really sure what his plan is. He's stuffing the papers. like Money. Yeah. yeah. And then he shoots. Yeah. Maybe and shoots Ryu. I, I don't think that was really explained as well as it could have been. But the biggest positive change in characters w- was that relationship between uh, Tetsuo and Kaneda, as I alluded to earlier. So in the manga, Tetsuo is immediately evil and then he kills Yamagata in front of Kanada and then Kanada's like I want to kill you now yeah that was actually a a very quick switch that I might have missed just because I read it really quickly and only once but I was so surprised at how quickly he became murderous toward his friends yeah and I think I got a little bit development a little bit more development from the movie because that was when I figured out like oh, he's really been the runt of the group and he's been targeted by them. And so I understand how he would still be angry at them, but I didn't quite understand why he would be murderous toward them in the manga. And so his slower change into this power-hungry being felt more natural. Yes, I I completely agree. Just as a 12-year-old, I didn't believe that he would just like snap and suddenly want to kill everyone around him because even though they were kind of bullying toward him i also felt like you know in the end of the movie he's reflecting on how much support they also gave him because he didn't have a family and they were his chosen family so i was like really like he would just immediately start wanting to kill like so yeah i think that was definitely an improvement to like draw out his development a little bit more especially when you have six volumes to do that in like Mm -hmm. you know don't rush that so quickly because you have so much time where he can develop those motives i guess was that was kind of missing from his motive 
yeah, incredibly, there's more development in their relationship in the film than yeah. over, at least over the first three volumes that mm-hmm. that we read. Um, I only read two. But yeah. yeah. <laughs> but yeah, because in the film, Kanada is confrontational with Tetsuo, but he also wants to save the part of him that's still there, which makes the ending that much more tragic at first because as Tetsuo is exploding into this amorphous flesh baby, Kanada is well said. is yelling at him and you know trying to get to the Tetsuo the person to to reach to him in some level and it, it's too late that by that point and that's what's so tragic is that Kanada just really doesn't want that to happen he wants Tetsuo to live where in the manga it's just like I'm gonna freaking kill him when the first time I see him and then the the kind of the beautiful part of the ending of the movie is that Tetsuo is saved, but you realize that something else beyond understanding has happened. He has gone to this new plane mm-hmm. um, through the help of, of the espers. And I guess Akira that you could say that now Tetsuo is maybe at, he's at peace at least. He's not in any more pain. It seems like since he's like become one with the universe uh chaotic neutral yeah yeah so that's kind of the you know the bittersweet ending of it where yes he is not alive in the traditional sense yeah corporeal form but he is not struggling or at least that's my interpretation that's what was implied that he's gone on to this new plane with the espers and with akira yeah, and I, I kind of think that's where it gets into my personal, not dislike, but I probably wouldn't go toward this piece again, because I think it's really bold for Otomo to have this like very chaotic, destructive story. And he, he went for it. Like there are three explosions, like there's not really a positive ending. And I think he has a lot to say about that. And I think I read a little bit too about how this piece is very postmodern and how it like especially the movie resists does a lot to like resist interpretation and there's just like a lot of chaos and I think that in itself is sort of his point um and he sort of uses that as like like we said earlier sort of this like metaphysical statement of how like you know sometimes like life doesn't have any meaning and like using the bombings of Nagasaki and Hiroshima as like a like a point in a narrative for Japanese culture can sometimes be like not a positive thing um, or just like something that shouldn't be looked at as the beginning of reconstruction for the country and the culture I think that's just where like I have like a very hard time enjoying this because I have like such a high level of anxiety going on all the time about like destruction and death and like for me some of the hardest parts to watch in this film are just the civilian casualties and it's a great point you know to be honest just even the soldiers getting shot like this like you see when you're talking about Kay having her first kill like you see that soldier die you know like and sort of struggle to die like he he's shot in the head but he sort of slides down the wall and then drowns like not only in his own blood, but like in like sewage water. And like, Mm -hmm. to me, like, I understand where that's coming from. And I understand like the chaos of that trauma coming out of, you know, 
multiple atomic bombs being dropped on multiple cities in a very small country. But I think just like for myself, I just found that to be like almost like another trauma. And I know that's like well, yeah. so like millennial of me no. to say. And like, and, and I'm not Japanese. So like I haven't been through that cultural trauma or that generational trauma is really what it is. But again, just like that civilian casualty part. And, and even like that bomb going off in the police station after they've released the gang, that just to me, like there was just so much of this like very graphic, very intense death throughout that was not toned down like that's that's sort of a similarity between the manga right. and the anime that like was just very disturbing to me so i understand where he's coming from and i understand like what he's saying i just think for myself it's a little bit more of a chaotic vehicle that i yeah i, I won't go back to it's certainly a lot but you have the more obvious one-to-one -one metaphor of that like nuclear bombs are dropped because of a war but they affect mm -hmm. civilians the casualties are on the civilian side and and, and children you're and right elderly people and, and you know you feel everyone. yeah otomo makes a point in both the manga oh and dogs i'm sorry not to interrupt you too but two dogs get shot oh yeah right and, <laughs> and a child in the backseat of his parents car watches two german shepherds being shot that almost was like i think yeah that's otomo being like that is war it's not it's mm -hmm. not simply soldiers fighting because i i like war movies but a lot of times the point can be lost on how cool the action looks yeah. uh, that's kind of just an unfortunate side effect of of war films where otomo very much brings the effect of war rebellion or nuclear fallout to the homes of people who have nothing to do with war so you don't right. every single death you feel it uh the blood you the blood is bright red as opposed to actual human blood which is a little bit darker than that um Ooh, how do you know that <laughs> <laughs> can't reveal the information i have to kill you um but i think that yeah you you have the obvious metaphor of that a nuclear bomb affects civilians and cities but then on top of that you have the the way that violence is handled in the film and even so much as kaoris or i i don't know how cowries 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 excuse me heard that in the film the the sexual assault i mean it's yeah, horrifying that was really that was bad. shocking yeah. and i'm reminded of Brandon Cronenberg, David Cronenberg's son, he made a film called Possessor, and he did an interview on that about the explicit nature of that film. And he was saying that, in a way, explicit violence is less scary than sanitized violence because realistic violence shows the world like as it is. It's horrifying in the way that actual violence is horrifying. Whereas sanitized violence, like a PG-13 movie, 100 people could be shot sexual assault could be shown but you know you have off it screen. off screen and then you get you know a pg-13 rating whereas i think otomo is very much interested in the horrifying reality of reality <laughs> if that makes any sense violence is something that also looks cool at times in the film but is much more of a shocking act that really affects you as opposed to other 
animation films or just action films in general. Well, and honestly, like good for him for having that statement because yeah. this is really politically significant now, especially after the shootings in Georgia that were very clearly racially motivated. Thank you. And just the hatred toward Asian Americans and Asian people in general, you know, prior to the pandemic, which wasn't always reported on, but also during the pandemic, because like people don't know where to either don't know where to lay the blame even though there really is no blame to be laid in this situation or just like misplaced anger at, you know, people who they don't think belong in like American society or, you know, like Mm -hmm. I think it, it continues to be relevant. Um, and especially the sexual aspect of that. Like, um, there are multiple times where sexual harassment, not just the graphic almost rape, but certainly harassment of Corey happens like, I think right in the opening, there's a woman who's like physically resisting a man in the bar. And she's saying like, no, I don't want to do this. And he's like, oh, come on. And then later, like, you know, a very sexual, like a guy literally has like his hand up this woman's shirt in the park and they're like making out. And it's like, gosh, like you don't see that a lot in movies of just like you see the suggestion of it, but you don't really see like the pretty gnarly, like and clear cut sexual harassment. Um of you know women and yeah, yeah it's just yeah you're right it's very shocking and it continues to be relevant every time i watch this movie i know that that scene with cowrie is coming up and i i have to brace for it every time and i've yeah. seen this movie countless times and it's 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 just a re, it's a reminder to alongside the violence um and not not decoupling that act from violence in the film because mm. it definitely is but I'm I'm kind of saying like the violence towards Cowrie and then the standard kind of you know war type or battle type violence um how brutal unrelenting and unforgiving it is and I think Dan you made a good point with kind of mentioning how in war films you know, violence can be romanticized to a degree because it looks, you know, quote unquote cool or, you know, the action involved with it makes it appealing to a degree. The violence in this series or the movie is not appealing. It's Mm. jarring. It's in your face and it's meant to be pushed up in your face to drive home the fact that we're dealing with a chaotic dystopia. We're dealing with a broken society here. This is the fallout. These are the repercussions that people are dealing with or experiencing on an almost constant basis and it's like the client you know the the um, catharsis i think is basically back loaded throughout the entire like it's it's this kind of slow burn like you mentioned earlier today or when you sent me you know your thoughts on it last night it's like this slow build and then like bang um you know everything kind of culminates in this one um you know, cathartic or climax and throughout, but, but, but the thing that makes it so hard to watch is that there's this constant, um, you know, thread of, of destruction and violence throughout the whole film that's represented in different ways and it's unforgiving. Um, Mm -hmm. and then, you know, that ties into how, there's these after effects or direct effects being experienced by the civilians in Neo Tokyo that are caused by, you know, the colonel's demand or, 
or pursuit of controlling the experiment in you know hopes of avoiding another akira like event there's the in the in the manga there's and it's it's represented you know very briefly in the film but there's a um a line of thought given to particular tax reform that the kind of round table is dealing with restructuring because they're uh, they they know that it's directly pushing their citizens down and they're like they've buried their the, the previous prime minister has put in these crazy tax reforms that have just buried mm-hmm. you know certain classes of society from ever getting back up again and there's this whole back and forth of like this is your fault no this is your fault this is you know, the previous prime minister's fault, this is killing our city, we have to deal with this too. So that's kind of another point that's a little elaborated on a little bit more in the manga than it is in the film. But um, it's it's just constant chaos from start to finish. And it plays a pretty important role in terms of driving home the fact that, hey, it's supposed to be this way. It's, a, yeah. you know, it, in terms of Otomo saying, I'm intentionally putting all of this conflict up in your face in hopes of driving home the idea here. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I think it's a good point to state that, you know, sometimes implied violence is far worse than the actual kind of direct representation of it because the direct representation is immediately understandable. You know what's happening, you know what's going on, you see it for what it is. And the implied violence leaves it up to the imagination of the viewer, which can, you know, depending on, it's a subjective point, depending on the viewer, it could be far worse than than what is actually happening. But it's an interesting device. And it makes it it's one of the things that makes it pretty uncomfortable to view the film mm-hmm. in its entirety. Well, yeah, and I like thinking about that political layer too of what happens after you end up burying your citizens in taxes. Like that sort of shows the allure of trying to start over again. Like what if we just like blew up the system and completely started from scratch because it would be so much more work to go through to deconstruct it, figure out what we should keep and not keep and then put a new system together. And like, I think that's sort of where that like that allure comes from is it just, it would be just so much easier if we could start from scratch. But then like, if you do think about the repercussions, like starting from scratch by you know, detonating an atomic bomb, like, is a little bit extreme. (laughs) Like, you probably wouldn't want to start there. But I think, like, Otomo takes it there because he's like, this is an extreme story. And, like, the allure of just having that power to start over with the flick of a switch, like, I think that's where it starts to get, like, messy because you don't think about the people who are going to be killed or affected um, it's just, and then it becomes almost like an ideal that like suddenly you sort of start to like lose because you're like making all these excuses, like oh, it would be easier, you know, it would be, um, power would become centralized again. So we wouldn't have to go through these discussions and this policy that I don't want to think about. Like, yeah, I think that's like an interesting thing to yeah. unpack. Yeah. And that's exactly why the, the coup happens. Cause even after the government, um, is in place, once Neo Tokyo is rebuilt, then of course there's another system that wants to do exactly that restart and then take over to think everything will be better. But the violence and casualties that comes from that coup is, you know, it's a a, a net loss um, for sure. And, but yeah, I think Otomo is able to 
have his cake and eat it too because there's that political commentary there's the commentary on nuclear war there's the whole chaos and the shocking nature of the violence but also there is that quote unquote really cool action like all the whole telekinesis powers i mean that's why stranger things i think the action is in that is so fun because it's just it's neat to see characters with telekinesis move shit around and cause destruction i mean that's cool so you have your cake and eat it too, because on one side, you're, you get the message about the violence and you know exactly what Otomo is saying with his commentary on war and politics. But at the same time, you know, the laser cannon, the, the motorbike, Tetsuo, yeah. you know, throwing army men across the room, uh, you know, causing rooms to crush and, and whole cities to rise. That's cool. And, I mean, that, that's neat. Yeah. So, and the political scene isn't overdeveloped. Like, I, you know, it could have been taken out, but I think it really, it like furthers the theme. Yeah. But like, I was just going to give an example of how another movie completely overdevelops the political side of things is the Phantom Menace, which we've talked about. Like, I, I think we've talked about this where like, I watched that movie recently and I was like, Oh, like the political aspects of this is actually really interesting. Yeah. And I started like thinking about all of these, like, these political factors where where really like if you sit down and watch a sci-fi movie like that's not where you're going into (laughs) i i remember that's just like the spectrum of like how to do it correctly yeah yeah i (laughs) well i don't really fully remember but being five years old one of the (laughs) the the first movies i i ever saw in the theaters i think my first memory is seeing a bug's life and then seeing phantom menace the second movie in theaters trying to wrap my head around the whole <laughs> trade system blockade yeah. <laughs> i'm like what what is this <laughs> what is trade <laughs> yeah and what what is a political council yes yeah where it's like interesting to think about those things now because yeah. of yeah we're adults but like well the, the really whole hook- pre i mean the prequel trilogy has been disparaged enough but uh, they go into that too with attack of the clones about how palpatine is on both sides of the war he don't creates. get us started don't give me started yeah on he, attack of the clones yeah that's not <laughs> we can move away from star wars right but anyway that's like the way to do no, it. no but i think in this movie yeah to do it right. i think <laughs> when you're dealing with political messages it's very easy to overdo it and that's kind of the brilliance of the writing is that he can get in his agenda but at the end of the day, this is also just a, a fun action film as well as being a deeply chaotic, upsetting in the good way of like it makes you feel something like I, I don't know about you, Ryan, but I watch so much content that like when a film actually reaches out to me and makes me feel something. I mean, even if I feel crummy, it, it's still a, a, a good an achievement, a good sign. So, oh, absolutely. Um, yeah. I, I noticed, I rewatched it again last night as well. I wanted to do it in solidarity with you guys. And it, it, uh, I found myself getting emotional at points. And I was like, I always get upset at this point, or I always get, you know, sympathetic at this point. And I just was like, it just drove it home, you know, in the context of us prepping this, the material for this podcast and trying to take kind of more of an academic approach stepping back objectively looking at like, why am I reacting like this to certain parts of the film? Just through that line of thought, I realized like I've seen this movie countless numbers of times and 
I still at every, at these certain points, it hits me hard every single Mm -hmm. time. And it's just, it's masterfully done. And it's, it's because it's done so damn near perfectly that that message continues to resonate time and time and time again. And that's what makes it a very powerful movie from, from a, from an emotional standpoint and a message standpoint. Um, we, you know, we, we mentioned the, its importance through the lens of what it did for the animation industry a little, a little bit earlier, but in terms of overall message delivery and its ability to stand the test of time is it's left an indelible mark on the world of cinema by being able to be relatable, even though it's over 30 years old. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And it, it continues to be brought up and talked about and it kind of ebbs and flows. I mean, it, you know, as generations come and go this, I, I honestly think like it, it, it's, it maintains its importance and it's being revered because it's accessible through the art form of animation and it helps it become probably more resilient than if it was done live action right out of the gate. Um, yeah. Which is interesting. Um, yeah actually the article that i keep talking about likened akira to not necessarily the atomic bomb but what akira detonates because it sort of expanded japanese culture outward mm. so successfully and i was like wow like that's a pretty <laughs> that cool such, idea yeah it's such a good idea because i think like during this time during the late 80s they were japanese culture was very successful in pharmaceuticals and technologies and like so many different things. I think that they were sort of peaking after World War II. And this just like expanded that influence so successfully that like we still have even just, I don't know if this is too expansive to say, but just the semi-recent renaissance of adult cartoons, like I think that can really be traced to a lot of anime because like you were saying in the beginning, like this is not a children's piece. Like you saw it when you were 12 or so. And, you know, we watched it later, but like, it's so intense that like, it's certainly adult, you know, and that's the same as like stuff like Archer or even Big Mouth to a certain extent. Like I, I don't know if I would show it to my kids. Like, there's a lot. There's a lot of like really good stuff about sexual empowerment, but there's also like some pretty racy stuff in there that are raunchy stuff that kids probably shouldn't be as exposed to. And like that, I, we could list you know hundreds of adult comedy or not comedy drama as well, um, animation stuff that's like very popular. So yeah, I feel like you can really trace it to this kind of stuff. Rick and Morty has a good oh, chaotic yeah. nature. Yeah, I didn't even think of Rick and Morty. Yeah. Or Futurama, like Yeah. Yes. Or Simpsons. I mean, gosh, yeah. that's Yeah, like... the the influences from Akira are numerous. We've mentioned a few, but there's many more. Yeah. So I'm I'm still in awe of just the level of detail and the, the impact this film had. You so know, uh, we we talked a lot about the visuals, mm-hmm. but I don't know if we want to start wrapping up because we've been Yes, I was about time. to. But well, what I was going to mention last was the creepy creepy score 
Like how creepy is that chanting? How intense oh, is that? Oh my gosh. That, that is like, epic. That like got into my brain in like a very mm-hmm. uncomfortable way. Oh my gosh. That was like one of the creepiest things about this movie. Yeah. And, or the lack of sound design too in mm-hmm. certain aspects really adds a creepiness and intensity. intensity to it yeah. as well. I mean, some of it can be credited to kind of just the lack of technology or like finesse in sound equipment for the 80s. But at other times it felt very intentional where it's just you sit with the silence of it all. Along the way, doing research and also, you know, personally kind of expanding on something I noticed or thought might be important. There's a lot of clash between what could be considered as, you know, traditional type style music and like 80s techno synth yeah, in the movie. So yes. in, in the realm of like cyberpunk, which is ultimately what this falls under, which is kind of a category or a subcategory of science fiction that, you know, has its roots and origins from, you know, Philip K. Dick and, and the like and other authors similar to him, but really found its avenue, I think, in the late 70s, early 80s, um, and really kind of solidified itself. Cyberpunk deals with kind of like this clash of tradition with the evolution of technology and and what it might mean for the future. And it's that's a really important aspect of the movie, uh, of the film, at least, in that it it it's represented through like this, this these jarring instances of of traditional style music offset with these moments where you have this kind of techno sound involved and it's just this dichotomy that's ever present throughout the whole film and it's it's a really interesting um device that's used and they they played with sound in a a really fantastic way throughout throughout the film yeah, that's such a way, a good way of saying it because I think I remember multiple times looking at Danny and either saying like, oh my God, that chanting is so creepy or like, oh, that is so 80s. Like, mm-hmm. I dig that so much. Or, or yeah, when he, when Tetsuo emerges through the fire and you just hear the, ha, 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 and you're like, oh, something's about to go down. Yeah, and then the missile, they fire it and he catches it with his telekinesis in midair. Yeah. incredible stuff gosh we could talk about this for a couple hours more but unfortunately (laughs) we must wrap it up we recorded for so long it's all great stuff yeah mind you but any we all gave a fantastic effort on giving our overview and our thoughts and feelings on what is a profound story Mm -hmm. um and presented in amazing ways through the manga and the film i mean this was this was an undertaking but i think we 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 gave it a really awesome effort so that that's just my thoughts on it i mean i i i feel like i could sit here and talk with you guys for those six hours on everything that we you know noticed in the film but yeah it was a lot of fun never have we undertook six books in one episode (laughs) yes well it is to be fair they go by pretty quickly but still Six volumes is yeah. a lot. But I mean, but I mean that two hour movie. But the eleven twenty two sixty three that, oh, yeah, that that's was also a, a saga. That's a thousand page book. And uh, Stephen Have King. Have you read that? By the way, I've heard of it. I haven't read it yet. Oh, oh my goodness! We will... It's the best. It's the best Stephen King novel I've ever read, and that includes every single book that he's like. Wow. Cujo, yeah. Misery. 
The Shining, every it is well it's very different than his other books but it's really good it's also a bit sci-fi but we'll talk about it off mic so 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 this episode is three hours but all right ryan well again this was an incredible conversation incredible time we will meet in person one day Um, (laughs) or we could prolong the inside joke and just Never meeting the person off. We could just put it off and be like, hey, 40 years from now, I'd be like, isn't it funny that we've never met? And be like, well, we could have, like, a lot, but we (laughs) just, for the sake of this dumb inside joke, decided not to. Um, Yeah. yeah. We (laughs) need to keep. It's been an honor and a privilege. I thank you guys so much for, you know, having me be on on the podcast and talk about one of my favorite stories of all time. I hope hope you guys liked it. I, I, I know it was a tough one, but. I think it's a super important story, both yeah. in the manga and the film, and I, I really appreciate being a part of it. And it, it was a lot of fun and great to great to meet you guys, you know, virtually, but also kind of actually. So it, it's yeah. been it's been a lot of fun. Thank you so much for being on here. I think we say this every time we have a guest, but our guest episodes are usually the ones that perform the most, which is probably get the most downloads. Yeah, like exactly. We're in it for the downloads. We couldn't, (laughs) we couldn't care less what we're talking about. No, but I also really appreciate that when we have guests, they suggest things that I would not have read. Like Ready Player One, when Tim brought that up, I was like, really, Tim? Like, go fuck yourself. I don't want to read this book. But, (laughs) But then I read it and I was like, this is so much fun. And same with Akira. Like, I didn't necessarily enjoy the process of it but after like discussing it and hearing your thoughts and how much you enjoy it and then how much other people enjoy it and how it's influenced other people that was like wonderful i never would have been exposed to this so thank you just, for just be thankful that it. hobbs and shaw wasn't a book before it was a film <laughs> oh my god <laughs> i i saw that movie on a flight from massachusetts to la and i couldn't I just, I just couldn't do it. I love The Rock. I love Jason Statham. I love Idris Elba, but I just couldn't. I couldn't do it. I'm sorry, Dan. I had the privilege of going and seeing it with Tim in theaters. Oh my god! And it was one of the rare instances where I walked out and I was like, "That is one of the biggest turds I've ever seen." Okay, thank God. I and Tim was like, say- "It's the greatest movie of all time. It's my favorite thing." And I was like, "You." <laughs> I, I don't know why we're friends right now because we vehemently disagree on this point. Yep. There were we points in the movie where something action oriented would happen and I would start cackling because I was like, this is so dumb. Well, yeah, let's be glad that's not a piece of literature unless you want to dig out the script. And I'd love to give Tim shit for that movie. I, and I, I will continue to do so till the end of my days. Maybe on our movies that we wish were books episode coming up next season, we'll talk about that. So, Why would yeah. you subject yourself to that? Yeah, uh, I'm certainly not going. To I I like the pain. I'm a masochist. I put myself through. Yeah. Well, again, thank you so much, Ryan. Uh, we'll be back next week with the woman in the window. I believe is. Can't wait to shit on that movie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Netflix is own. It's a Netflix original. How is it bad? Um, So yeah, thanks for listening and we'll see you on the next one.